Hi everyone, I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor here at Wired, and you are listening to The Gadget Lab, a podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I'm joined, as always, by co-host Ariel Pardes, Senior Associate Editor at Wired. Hello! And Lauren Good, Senior Writer at Wired. Hello! And today we have Wired reporter Peter Rubin in the studio with us to tell us all about E3, which is apparently some kind of gathering of gaming nerds. Yeah, it's like the Juggalos, except they scrubbed off all their makeup and went to play video games. <laughs> it's not really. That it's sounds, a video game show. That sounds amazing. Well, Peter will tell us all about what we need to know about the future of gaming. And later on, I will be talking about Keanu Reeves again. And Just wanted to put that out there. Is there is there E3 context for your Keanu Reeves this week? There is E3 context because, as you said, Michael, last week, Keanu Reeves is having a moment, and that moment has extended into E3. The Reavening continues. That's right. Oh, Mm. my goodness. Well, before we talk about Keanu and his dreamy, weird beard, you know, like how his beard has that weird shape? Anyway, I shouldn't be critical of other men's facial hair. Before we talk about um, (laughs) Keanu and his his dreamy facial hair, uh, we should get to the news. So, um, Lauren, why don't you kick us off? All right. If you're a giant tech company plotting the launch of your flagship hardware device this fall, you probably have a bunch of NDA silenced engineers working in a windowless room. If there are windows, there are almost certainly black curtains covering it. And you're waiting for the perfect moment to reveal it all on stage, right? Right? Or (laughs) if you're Google, you just tweet it out. I've been working on this approximately for zero days, and they just tweeted it out. Days after multiple tech blogs published renders of what they believed the upcoming Pixel 4 phone to be, Google decided just to tweet out an image of the phone. Uh, It identified it as the Pixel 4. It shows the back of the phone. um, And it's actually enough to make out a few distinguishing characteristics. One, the phone is probably going to be around the same size as last year's phone. There are always two models, the Pixel XL and then the regular size Pixel. Two, uh, this phone might not have the two different finishes on the back of the phone the way that prior Pixels did. Although perhaps just this photo that Google has tweeted for now appears to be just one singular color and they are going to that going at some point to design that two-tone back. And three, the phone appears to pack camera sensors into what looks like a square on the back of the phone. It's a little goofy looking, I'm not gonna lie. But it's this line from Wired's Brian Barrett about the intentionally leaked phone that uh, I think really sums it up. And he wrote on Wired.com, which you should go read, by dispensing with the look, Google can direct attention to its adventures in computer vision and speech, and possibly futuristic gesture control. Or he said recognition, but I'm going to say control. It turns the conversation back to what Google's really selling, which is Android. Which is true. I mean, a lot of things that we've written about Google Pixel phones as they've launched over the past couple of years is how much Google is doing with computational software in order to make some of the effects and the features of the phone work really well, as opposed to saying, like, well, it's got this crazy processor, full stack processor, and it's got like, you know, six camera lenses. That's not Google style with Pixel. Google style with Pixel is to basically do the basics, you know, of a high-end flagship phone in terms of hardware and then load all of their software on it to present to you the most optimized version of Android that you could get. That's right. And there's nothing surprising about the photo that's that's leaked, right? Like it looks like what you would expect the Pixel 4 to look like. And it's called, surprise, the Pixel 4. Like it makes a lot of sense for Google to get in front of this and say like, yep, you're right. Like this is the phone you're going to get. But the thing that makes it really exciting and the thing that we have yet to tell people about is, is what's inside of it. 
Right, and Brian also makes the point that for some companies like Apple, if you were to leak your own phone, you would cannibalize sales of the existing phone because you would create this uh, dynamic where customers are starting to wait. They'll mm -hmm. say, well, I'm not going to buy a phone now. I'm not going to buy the phone that just came out six months ago because now I know this new one's coming within the next you know, five to six months. That's something that's really detrimental for something like a company like Apple. For a company like Google that really still sells a pretty low volume of Pixel phones, that doesn't matter so much. They just kind of want people to know they're on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the, the most interesting part to me was the way that Google worded its tweet where it said, um, we can't wait to show you what it can do. Mm -hmm. You know, which really underscores that point. That's like, it's more about what the phone can do than the actual hardware itself, right? That's right. Should we move on to more controversial Google-related topics? Yes. So I want to talk about the YouTube apology this week. Um, we talked a little bit about the incidents that led up to this last week, but this week we have an update because YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki apologized this week for her company's failure to handle a particular case of abuse on the platform. Now, the incident in question involves the conservative pundit Steven Crowder, who has repeatedly attacked members of the queer community on his, um, on his YouTube channel. Crowder's behavior was thrown into light by the journalist Carlos Maza, who works for Vox. Maza put together a video compilation of Crowder making homophobic remarks about him and posted it to Twitter, where it gained all kinds of momentum. YouTube's initial response was to do nothing, saying that while Crowder's remarks were hurtful, they did not violate YouTube's policies. That decision sparked a whole new wave of outrage from Maza, from journalists, from members of the LGBTQ community, and even from Google employees who signed a letter condemning the lack of action on YouTube's part. So on Monday, speaking at the Code Conference in Scottsdale, Arizona, Wojcicki said that the decisions YouTube made were very hurtful, this is a quote, very hurtful to the LGBTQ community and that was not our intention at all, end quote. She then apologized. And the whole incident from Crowder's comments not being taken down to the outrage about YouTube's lack of enforcing its own policy to finally a public apology when pressured into it by people in the room really sort of speaks to YouTube's failure to have a clear policy about, about hate speech and what constitutes hate speech, and then also its failure to enforce those policies even when the greater public seems to think that is what the platform should be doing. That's right. When Wojcicki, or YouTube, I should say, broadly announced these changes to their community policies last week, the timing was such that it was all happening right around the time of uh, Maza really calling out Crowder's behavior as harmful and abusive. But YouTube has said that at this point that they were working on these guidelines for several months. The timing was just really ironic, I guess, that you know it just so happened that they decided to publish these policies right around the time that there was this flare-up happening on the internet. But I think um, you know one of the things that struck me a little bit about Wojcicki's interview at Code Conference was just how generally anodyne she seems. And sorry, that was my Apple Watch telling me to breathe. <laughs> <sighs> Apple Watch knows we're podcasting. But really, like how generally anodyne and uncontroversial she wants to appear when arguably YouTube is one of the most controversial platforms in technology right now, possibly second behind only Facebook. And I think it just underscores how much YouTube really doesn't know what the heck to do about this. They have no idea what to do. The same thing happened actually last year at Wired 25. Uh, I interviewed Susan on uh, on stage, and she's very pleasant. 
and she feels she seems unflappable, which is a good quality to have if you're an executive, but at the same time can come off as a lack of concern about these seemingly intractable problems. And at the time, the, this particular thing was not happening, uh, the Stephen Crowder Mazza situation, uh, or their kind of recent clarifications about what constituted a um, kind of um, bannable offense. But I did kind of confront her with examples of how searching for something on YouTube can send you down a pretty bad rabbit hole pretty quickly, and she was just kind of, yes, we know we need to fix this, and we know we need to fix this is not a solution, it's just a promise. That's right, and apologies tend to ring hollow when the history of YouTube suggests that they won't fix it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, I think part of, something that sort of complicates this a little bit, and I think is really important to note is that uh, one of YouTube's responses was to demonetize the channel, mm -hmm. right? So somebody is um, has has bad behavior that is pissing a lot of people off, but it doesn't explicitly violate their policies in a way that would force YouTube to turn the channel off. Something they'll do is they'll stop running ads on the channel, and has been pointed out by many people. Um, the a lot of the conservative pundits on YouTube don't make a lot of money off of ads anyway. Um, advertisers are not as willing to uh, advertise against their content, so they can't. They don't really. They're not really an attractive platform. It's it's not an attractive outlet for advertisers, right? They make a lot of their money selling merchandise and from speaking fees and uh, you know Patreon subscriptions. Things like that. So, um, you know, that is something that I think is pretty unique to this particular scenario, but uh, is important to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll have more to say next week about this. Yeah. Should we ongoing. just scoot on into the future? Indeed. I'd, I'd like uh, to move on to a new segment of the show called Hookups and Breakups of Silicon Valley. Uh, <laughs> this week, two scooter companies have become an item. That's Bird, which is one of the biggest electric scooter companies, uh, which this week acquired Scoot, another electric scooter company. Now, Bird and Scoot are both huge players here. Um, Bird, I'm sure if you live in a big American city you have encountered, they are all over the place. They have sort of stylish, black, minimalist scooters that seem to have become an invasive species in America. Um, and together with Scoot, uh, they represent a huge force in the micro-mobility movement. Um, but Scoot is interesting because it's one of just two companies that was given a permit to operate in San Francisco, which is, as some people see it, sort of the center of this growing movement. And so um, Bird, which did not receive a permit to operate in San Francisco, um, gains a lot by adopting this company or acquiring this company. Um, Scoot could give Bird an edge with regulators, which is something that will be super, super important as the company continues to scale. And Bird gives Scoot a much bigger platform to scale. Um, so taken together, I mean, this sort of feels like the beginning of the great consolidation of scooter companies. It will surely not be the last of partnerships, breakups, makeups, and so on. Um, but it, it does show that the scooters are, are here to stay and that they're only gaining power. <laughs> now these two scooters, they're different, right? The types of scooters that they are? Or no, are they both just the same kind that you like you put one foot on. And yeah, they're motorized. You kind of kick to start, and then they'll get up to about 15 miles per hour. Okay. Oh, so they are the same. They For are, some yeah. reason, I thought that Scoot... What's the one I'm thinking of that's like a red motorbike? Scoot also makes those. Yeah, oh, so okay. That's like what a, I was thinking of. Like a sort of Vespa-style scooter, but, right. but they also create these electric scooters that are very similar to Bird or Lime or... 
Um, I don't know. There are so many scooter companies now. Kick? Is that one? Maybe. Did I just make it up? You should, you should pitch Breeze? That. How about that? <laughs> kale. <laughs> oh, sorry. I just got a call. I just raised Series A for Kale scooters, everyone. Congratulate That's me. That's great. Yeah, they ship with the free green helmet. Exactly. And keep your head noggin healthy. Yep. Um, <laughs> something that I think is really interesting about the, the scooter world is that there are all of these companies, as you just noted, um, and they're all sort of fighting for dominance in different cities. And one way that you win dominance is through marketing. You just gain uh, loyalty through customers who say, I like this one the best, or I have the app and I don't want to download a different app, like this is the one I'm going to go with. But another way that you gain dominance is by working the, the regulatory angle. And that's becoming increasingly important as more and more cities start to put the brakes on how these companies can operate. And so um, Scoot is a company that's been around for a very long time. They're actually a very, very early player in the scooter space um, long before it became a trend. And so they have a big uh, advantage here in, in the sense that they know how to appeal to regulators. They have history. Um, they've proven that they're safe. And, uh, you know, they, they've already, you know, sort of won the regulatory game in San Francisco. So um, there's also what, what I find interesting is some speculation around this. Now, just across the bay in Oakland, Bird and Lime are the two dominant scooter brands. But there's a lot of speculation that Bird, while buying Scoot, is not. It's not going to put Bird scooters in San Francisco. It's just going to now that Scoot are Scoot belongs to it. It's just going to have Scoot there, and then by proxy be a player in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Whereas across the water, Bird will remain. So the question of brand loyalty, which I don't know if it's become a factor yet. It's. I think most people are agnostic. Maybe they they don't want to get more than two apps. But like you walk out of a metro station and you're like it, this one's always here i'll For just sure. take it but i don't see the same sort of brand allegiance or loyalty with scooters it's just it's a it's a supply issue purely so but you're saying that if you're a scooter company and you've managed to work the system and establish yourself in cities in a dominant way then you're pretty much winning the game even without spending a lot on customer acquisition. That's because right. you're just there, you're just present. Which is why playing the regulatory game and being kind of first to market is so important. And that's not to say that being first to market helped people in San Francisco because there were so there were there was this kind of early explosion and San Francisco said, wait, hold on, moratorium on all scooters, we're gonna basically give licenses to two of them. And that ended up being scoot and Again, I want to say kick. Jump? I don't remember. <laughs> oh, maybe jump. That yeah. sounds familiar. Suave? Oh, there are just so, so many, though. And, and Joy. It's, we also have to keep in mind that, like, Lyft has electric scooters. Uber has electric mm -hmm. scooters. Like, there are big players in this in this space. Mm -hmm. So um, sort of smart for, for Bird and Scoot to partner up. And may they have a happy union. Mazel tov. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, that does it for the news. Let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, Peter Rubin, we're going to put you in the hot seat. Ow. And we're going to grill you about E3. Excellent. Peter Rubin sent his avatar to E3 this week. That's right. He wasn't there in person, but he was there in spirit. And he has all the news for us. E3, as we mentioned earlier, is the gaming industry's biggest trade show, at least in the U.S. It takes place in Los Angeles, and it's where all of the new games are announced, some consoles, some hardware, lots of fun stuff. If you're a big gamer, you might already be up on the news. Um, even if you're not a big gamer, you should listen to this segment because we're going to break it down for you. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. And let me just say during that last commercial break, Series B funding 
came through for Kale Scooters. <laughs> so I'm going to be resigning directly after this show because I've got a company to run. But until then, let's talk E3. Are you offering equity? Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> well, let's just get started with the basics. For those of us who are maybe not into gaming, uh, what is E3? E3, which stands for the uh, Electronic Entertainment Expo, uh, is a trade show that has been around since 95. So I'm sure next year they will bill it as the 25th anniversary, but this year's was actually the 25th E3. Now, what that's meant over the years has evolved. It went from being a very kind of small thing because their games journalism looked a little different in 1995. There were a few websites, but not very many. Uh, and then when you got into the 2000s, it was um, trying to get a press pass was difficult because there were print outlets that were covering games and then there were blogs that were covering games, but you didn't necessarily have these big digital outlets that were covering games. So it's kind of had these ebbs and flows of accessibility and relevance over the years. And what's happened most recently is that the bigger brands are finding that it's valuable less valuable than it has been to reach their fans by doing the big E3 press conference. Um, Nintendo historically has done kind of a video stream even though they're, they're present every year showing their games on the game floor. This year, Sony didn't come at all. Uh, instead, they opted to just like leak news about a month ago that they were working on the next PlayStation and leave it at that. Uh, and so the big question coming into this year was, what are we gonna learn about cloud gaming services that we know are coming from Microsoft and Google? What are we going to find out about the next consoles that are coming from PlayStation and Xbox and conceivably uh, Nintendo? And then beyond that, what are we going to see for the end of this generation of consoles and the beginning of the next generation of consoles as, as far as the games and services that are going to be coming to those? It seems like there's a pretty long lead time between what's announced at E3 and when things actually come oh, out. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's the time. So the com basically the show starts on Tuesday. Sunday and Monday are when the big brands do their big sort of press conferences. And those tend to be open to fans. You don't necessarily have to be a quote industry insider or vendor or developer or journalist to go to those. So that historically is Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft as the, the big console manufacturers and also kind of game publishers in their own right. And then Ubisoft, Bethesda, Square Enix, are the three big um, publishers that tend to do their own kind of dedicated press conference. Um, and what tends to happen is that it's a con these press conferences are a combination of the last few details about a game that's just about to come out in the next three months, or it's giving a date to a game that people are anticipating, maybe holiday late later this year, or it's showing a first very early look at a game that's not coming until the next year or even beyond that. So it's this combination of dotting I's and crossing T's on games we know a lot about and then wetting everyone's appetites for games they had no idea were even being worked on. So true to form, this had, you know, these press conferences had a little bit of both. Uh, there was some, oh, there was, okay, a lot of talk about the cloud this year at E3, right? Uh, tell us, like, what is going on with cloud gaming? What exactly is cloud gaming and who are the big players? Uh, so first, let's define it, right? Because we've talked about this a couple of times over the past eight months because last year Microsoft kind of took the wraps off what it was working on and Google did earlier this year. So cloud gaming, this is something, the idea of this has been around for a long time. It's essentially game streaming where rather than having a console in your home that plays the games, whether that's through physical disk or files that you downloaded, 
uh, you are able to stream games directly from a cloud server somewhere to your device. And it has the potential to open up games past the controller, TV, or mouse and keyboard, PC monitor, dyad that we're very used to. It stands to, you know, the promise of cloud gaming is that you could A, play on the go, and that B, you could play in a more device agnostic way. That if you had a controller that could communicate with any mobile device, you might be able to stream games to your phone or iPad or tablet or laptop or whatever it is. Devices that wouldn't normally be able to run that game off their own internal hardware because they're not powerful enough. Instead, all that hardware work is being done on these cloud servers and then you're effectively just using your device as a monitor for a game. So that's cloud gaming. Sweet. And? And uh, we got, well, <laughs> Google also did the thing where much like Sony decided not to come to E3 because they claimed they didn't have new games to show and they were just hard at work on the next thing. Google last week was like, hey, we're going to get ahead of the E3 news cycle and, and drop a bunch of details about Google Stadia, which mm -hmm. is its cloud um, cloud gaming platform. So that happened last week, and that had some details about pricing, some details about the games that were going to come at launch. They're coming out in November, but only if you kind of buy in at a pre-order founders bundle kind of situation. Other than that, it's not going to launch till 2020. Um, we heard more about Project xCloud, which is Microsoft's um, cloud gaming service. They devoted a little bit of time at their keynote slash press conference on Sunday to talking about xCloud. Um, and we also started to hear from companies that were, if not doing a straight consumer cloud gaming platform, we're doing things and rolling out products and ideas that were there to facilitate the onset of cloud gaming. Specifically, Bethesda announced something called Orion, which is kind of a suite of technologies that is about compressing games and reducing latency so that you could use a cloud gaming service and the Bethesda games that you bought or played through that would be even better. So Who's it's like the suite this of tools for? Is it for consumers to purchase or is it for the companies that want to get into cloud gaming to utilize? It's there. It's kind of the name that they are giving this technology. It's more like a middleware situation. Okay. Um, so there was a question when they announced it. Is this another platform? Like, do I have to decide between Stadia and xCloud and now Orion? And it doesn't appear that that's the case. It seems like Orion is just the way that Bethesda is um, getting ready for its games to stream in the best quality possible. Right. Now, Sony also announced, Sony and Microsoft uh, six weeks ago, maybe two months ago, announced that they were gonna be working together that they were essentially doing a technology swap, that Microsoft was gonna help Sony become a better game streaming company, and in return, Sony would give Microsoft some quid pro quo, I can't remember what exactly. But you're seeing all these people kind of ready the chess pieces. And it certainly raises the specter of how many services are there going to be? How are you going to choose? Is cloud gaming going to be preferable in any way to home gaming or to a Nintendo Switch, which lets you game on a TV at home and then take it with you to go? Is the convenience uh, of being able to play something on any device enough to outweigh this added cost and the uncertainties around cloud gaming? Are you, do you own the game? Is it a license? What happens if the service goes under? All these things that are unanswered questions that Google is certainly facing given its history of kind of walking away from products uh, at some point in their life cycle. So next year is gonna be when this stuff really kicks off in earnest. Your people are gonna be able to get access to Google Stadia starting in November. 
they wouldn't Google wouldn't give hard numbers as to how many of these quote founders edition bundles they were going to sell. It's going to be somewhat limited. 2020 is when all this stuff is really going to come into play. Now, obviously, Fortnite was a big, big theme this year, mm-hmm. and it still is, right? Do you get the sense that game or evidence is there evidence that suggests that games like that are starting to take a serious bite out of the big legacy titles and console games and big platforms? So the the rise of the battle royale genre, mm-hmm. which is what Fortnite has been, certainly the most kind of crossover mainstream example of. You saw last year was full of companies announcing their own battle royale titles or coming out with them. Um, the most popular of which the one that posed the greatest challenge to Fortnite is something called Apex Legends. Um, And what you saw this year was a little bit more of that. You saw um, Bethesda, which makes the Fallout games, announced that there was going to be sort of a battle royale mode uh, in uh, in Fallout um, 76. They were kind of going to update this game that came out last year to give it a battle royale uh, capability. So the question of how Fortnite has pushed the industry is an interesting one, and certainly you've seen an explosion of games of that type, but you've also seen Fortnite itself, or at least Epic Games, which makes Fortnite expanding in really interesting ways. They just bought, I believe it's called House Party, which is like a social mm-hmm. networking tool. Yeah, it used to be Meerkat, and then they pivoted and they became House Party, and they were all about live chatting with your friends, So and then, yeah, and then Epic acquired them. So Epic acquired them, and it stands to reason that what started last year with a marshmallow concert that happened inside Fortnite and kind of heralded the rise of these social connected experiences happening in Fortnite, it's saying, I mean, I think you're going to see a lot of that. So I think what's, what is counterintuitively going to happen is you are probably going to see Fortnite start to evolve beyond being a mere battle royale game, which they've already done to some degree. There's like a creative mode there and you can kind of go to this deserted island and build stuff with your friends, but they want, they certainly want more young female gamers, which is supposedly the reasoning behind House Party is just to make this more of a social experience that isn't necessary. Like they, they tout the gender parity or the relative gender parity of their player base all the time in Fortnite, but I think they know that as tween players get older, the thing that is going to keep them playing Fortnite is as everybody gets interested in everybody else in new ways in their peer groups that Fortnite wants to be a place that those people want to stay and hang out and not just play games in. So I think you're going to see Fortnite evolve past our conventional kind of ideas of what a game really is in order to be more of a social destination than anything else. Mm-hmm. This this just sounds like you're talking about the plot of some science fiction movie. Oh, it definitely is that. <laughs> um, speaking of social stuff, uh, how big of a presence did uh, like Twitch and YouTube gaming have this year at, at E3? Um, that's a great question. Uh, Twitch has its own thing, right? Twitch has TwitchCon. Twitch has TwitchCon. Yeah. Um, YouTube has. YouTube's thing, uh, and certainly VidCon. <laughs> I guess what I mean is everyone is there, and everyone has kind of a booth, and everyone broadcasts live. But because these are distribution channels and not necessarily publishers, at least not yet, at least not in ways that we're familiar with, E3 for them is a place to have a presence but not be a place to announce products. Um, however, YouTube is interesting because obviously being a Google-owned company or a branch of Google at this point, Stadia and YouTube are going to work 
hand in hand in really interesting ways. You're gonna be able to use YouTube to launch games directly on Stadia. You're gonna be able to stream directly to YouTube while playing a Stadia game. And all these ways that this is gonna be kind of a two-way street between these two products. They really wanna open that street up a little bit. Uh, what threat that poses to Twitch uh, which is much more of a live streaming platform than YouTube has historically been is an interesting question because now YouTube is developing the ability to live stream gameplay in a way that has kind of been Twitch's uh, key differentiator up till now. Mm -hmm. uh, can we talk about Keanu? Y'all, let's talk about him. <laughs> Keanu was at E3. Yes, he was. Talk Explain. About <laughs> um, I love his thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about his beard? Uh, his weird beard. Um, okay, so so <laughs> here's here a little bit of, of preface for Keanu. Obviously, the reasoning is here. We know this, right? We know that uh, John Wick Three Parabellum was in theaters. We know that he had he he stole all the scenes he was in in Always Be My Maybe, the pretty frankly in, incredibly enjoyable uh, rom com on on Netflix. You're stealing my recommendation, Peter. Oh God, sorry. Keep going. So we also know we also know that um, that the studio CD Projekt Red has been working on a game called uh, Cyberpunk 2077, which was, uh, is an update to a game called uh, Cyberpunk 2020. Um, and so they got on stage at Xbox's press conference uh, to talk about it, and who came on stage to introduce it? But Keanu himself, Mr. John Wick. Mr. John Wick. Uh, inspiration for the most popular Fortnite skin in the game for a very long time, unofficially. Uh, and people lost their goddamn minds. Uh, someone yelled out, you're breathtaking! And, uh, he, and he in- uh, That was Lauren. Don't, don't embarrass her, Peter. She can't help I it. I was there. She has Keanu Tourette. So here's the wonderful thing about Keanu, is that when Lauren yelled that out at him, he said back, and this was straight out, straight out of Always Be My Maybe, he said, you're breathtaking. You're all breathtaking. Oh like, God. Keanu has developed, I think for a long time he was a cipher, right? Because he, he played people who were perpetually dumbfounded or just dumb, uh, and he didn't make the, like, the movies that he made were, they weren't really brain teasers, so he's kind of got this reputation as being kind of a lunk. But, like, he's showing real savvy these days. Uh, and there's also this idea that people are starting to um, pull together these montages or these series of photos that he takes with women who want to take pictures with him, and he never touches them with his hands. He's got this hover hand thing, which is fantastic and brilliant in its own kind of cynical way. So Keanu Reeves's uh, kind of media savvy, not to repeat myself, is just really running on all, uh, all cylinders right now and him coming on stage, the reaction he got and the reaction he gave back to the crowd just compounded the legend of Keanu. Um, so it's really like, this is peak right now, right? I mean, does anyone care about the game? Yes. Okay, that's good. <laughs> people, people do still care about <laughs> the game. Good. And in fact, there was a mini controversy that erupted, or not a mini, there was a little uh, controversy that that uh, erupted around the game itself. Uh, and then they were showing off a tech demo and there was like an in-game ad that showed uh, a character who was kind of clearly signaling as transgender. And the, the language of this in-world ad seemed to be somewhat uh, mocking. Uh, transgender identity and so this became a thing inside gaming journalism and and talking about like interrogating CD Projekt Red's own world building and what they meant by all this which is to say the game itself is not without its warts 
But Keanu introducing it and being a primary character in it is a thing that brought this game from being a thing gamers were waiting for to being a thing that the kind of world was aware of. And that's the kind of thing that is, it's difficult to do with a game. Um, and it's difficult for a game like that to do, right? Because it's a big RPG. This is a big game that's heavy and takes a lot of hours. It's not a dip in and play like Fortnite is. It's not something you're necessarily gonna do with all your friends like Fortnite is. So it's it's got a heavier burden and to get mainstream awareness of a game like that is a rarity. So props to them for doing it that way. You know what they should do is they should have a TED mode in the game where you could just go in and like hang out with Keanu. Or you just yeah. go up and talk for six <laughs> minutes about some intellectually challenging proposition and then they call it TED mode. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Or TEDx mode, maybe. <laughs> TEDx. Oh, that's pretty good. What would you give a TED Talk on if you had to? Um, God. that's This is the hot seat question. <laughs> what, what, I don't know. What would you give a TED Talk on? Well, Peter, you've written a book about connection VR. I have. I feel like there's probably a virtual TED Talk in the book, right? Yeah, but, but I think there have been enough VR TED Talks. I'd want to do something different. Hmm. I don't know. You also are very into fitness. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Am I? Is that uh, is that my identity? You are very cultured. Uh, th- this podcast is getting strange for me. <laughs> what right. would you ask? Next week, our assignment. All we ha- all have to come prepared with our TED talks. Oh, that's good. That'll TED be talk. my recommendation. Yeah, we even need to bring our little clickers in. What is clickers? Oh, the you slide know, thing. Yeah, the slide yeah, clicker yeah, yeah. and our little Madonna microphones. Oh. Absolutely. Well, maybe instead of bringing our TED Talks, we can just do our recommendations. Should we do that? Let's that do that. Okay, so let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have recommendations. Peter, do you want to join us for recommendations? Oh, I would love to. Since you're our guest, you can go first. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Uh, well, let me preface this by saying during that last commercial break, scandal has erupted, the board of Kale has been ousted, and uh, a pending acquisition has been scrapped, so I'm sorry to say that Kale Scooters has folded. Thank you all so much for your early support. I will no longer be resigning from Wired. Did you, uh, did you at least get the cool t-shirts? Uh, I, have, I have boxes of t-shirts. <laughs> have you written your Medium post yet about, about what went wrong and everything you learned? I'm, I'm working on that now, but I would love a consult uh, when I'm done with it because, frankly, everything went wrong. Turns out, bringing up an idea during a podcast is no way to launch a business. Especially if you're launching it before you've even finished recording the podcast. Uh, yeah, and has no mechanical aptitude whatsoever or business acumen or really... I'm. In that, I was, I guess, like any founder. Have you thought about putting Kale Scooters in the blockchain? I've that's That was my first pivot. <laughs> that was honestly my first pivot. Didn't go well. Don't know what the blockchain is. Turns out that's a bit of a stumbling block chain. Uh, but anyway. Uh, so your recommendation is not to start a scooter. My recommendation is not to pivot to blockchain with your imaginary scooter startup. Uh, that is my TED Talk, though, so I can skip that part next week. Uh, oh my so my recommendation is... What is happening? Uh, uh, assuming that you are all caught up and uh, are enjoying the the newly birthed second season of Big Little Lies on HBO, which is a glorious show, uh, I'm going to talk about a show that... that, that exists in a way that I can't even comprehend. Uh, Its first season is done and it has been renewed for season two. And it is a network sitcom that was created by uh, Liz Merriweather who created New Girl, 
which ran successfully for many years on Fox. This was a sitcom that aired between uh, mid-April and the end of May, and it was called Bless This Mess, and it ran on ABC, and it starred Dax Shepard, a.k.a. Mr. Kristen Bell, and Lake <laughs> Bell, strangely enough, uh, who is an accomplished uh, comic actress uh, and even director. She, director. Di- she directed the great um, comedy uh, In a World, which was about voiceover, uh, trailer voiceover act uh, narrators, which was great, but they star. It's a very Green Acre setup as a, uh, a couple that lived in New York City. He uh, inherited a farm in the middle of Nebraska, I believe, and they move there, sight unseen. Uh, so it's like Money Pit and Green Acres and sounds terrible and ridiculous. Uh, it doesn't seem like anything that would be on ABC. It doesn't seem like a sitcom at all. It's a single camera thing, no laugh track, as most sitcoms are these days. It has a ridiculously accomplished supporting cast, including Pam Greer and Ed Begley Jr. and uh, comedy mainstay in small roles, uh, David Koechner. Um, it's got a ton of people in it that you will recognize. It is very strange. It is really funny in a sneaky way. Like, you'll watch the pilot and be like, why would anyone watch this? And by the third episode, you're like, how how did this get made? It's really weird and kind of wonderful. Um, and who knows about network sitcoms anymore, especially ones that are released utterly without fanfare at the end of what we've come to think of as a conventional television season. I don't know what night it aired. I just found it on on Hulu, (laughs) Uh, and it's great. So watch uh, Bless This Mess, uh, a sitcom saddled with the burden of being a network sitcom with a terrible name, but it's actually quite good. And it's coming back for season two, you said? It has been renewed for season two. And who knows if anyone will know when that airs, but there's always Hulu. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That's a good recommendation. That's great. Mike, what's What's yours? Oh, boy. Do you all like baby goats? I, he's is wearing a, a startup idea. Michael is standing in an alley opening his trench coat while he asks us that question. Not in a flasher way, in a drug dealer way. Sure, sure, sure. But like seriously, do y'all like baby goats? Who does yeah. All right, because I've got some some internet crack for you. Um, I am going to recommend that you go on Instagram and you follow a user named Powazek. P O W A Z E. Derek Pauzek, uh used to work here at Wired long ago. He was one of the architects of Hot Wired. Uh, he also worked at Blogger. He's like an internet programmer guy from the late 90s, early 2000s. He also um, ran a zine for a while called Frey, which was like a storytelling zine. Anyway, Derek uh, and his, his lovely partner, Heather, uh, have moved to Oregon and they are now run a two-acre farm. It's called the Milk Barn Farm. It's not called Bless This Mess? No, it's called the Milk <laughs> Barn Farm. This is this is all real. They're, they're really cool people. They're, you know, very sweet people, but their goats are even sweeter. They have a goat herd on this farm, and two of the goats, one, I think one goat is, like, in labor or just went through labor, and another goat just had kids, like, last month. Actual kids. Yes. So if you go on the Instagram feed of Powazek, you will see not only in the feed but in the stories A-plus baby goat content. The goats play with each other. They jump on each other. They cuddle with him. They crawl on his lap, and he scratches their, their chins, and it is Absolutely amazing. They also have turkeys and chickens, and occasionally a human will show up. They grow 
you know, like vegetables on the farm, but who cares about that because they're baby goats. They are so darling. They all have they all have really cute names like caramel and Oreo and stuff like that. And they're just like they're like you just they're they're so cute and they're so amazing. I got to tell you, like there are a lot of days where I'm pretty stressed out and I get home and I just want to relax. There are many ways you can do that. My way lately has been opening up Instagram, tapping on Derek's feed and just watching some goats. Have you considered moving to a goat farm? Many times. Not really sustainable right now, financially, in my life. However, sooner or later, totally in the cards. Oh my god, these goats. Do you hear them? Baby goats. And because they're babies, they're, they're not, they don't sound terrifying yet. Which oh, is right. Like, the parents are quite cute, too. Anyway, that's my recommendation. Powazek, the user, P-O-W-A-Z-E-K, from Milk Barn Farm on Instagram. You can also follow Heather Champ. Did you know that in Half Moon Bay, you could do goat yoga? Oh, There's yeah. a sign. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, this cracks, me up. this cracks me up. There is a sign as you're driving out to Half Moon Bay, California, that says it's the side of the road in front of a farm that says goat yoga. There's a big picture of a goat. And below that, it says yoga with goats. <laughs> in case you didn't know what goat yoga meant, They've got a little explain, a little deck there, a little explainer, just to explain. Goat <laughs> yoga means yoga with goats. Are you know, sure there's people who see the side and they think like, goats do like yoga. I bring my goat and <laughs> make the goat or the goats do, do yoga? yoga, right? Downward goat, yeah. <laughs> oh boy! All right, Ariel, what do you got? What's yours? Um, well, you may have noticed that there are a lot of people running for president, like way too many and it can be a little hard to keep track of them. I personally am getting a little mixed up in my brain about like, you know, who eats salad with a comb and like <laughs> who believes in universal basic income. It's all very dizzying. <laughs> and uh, if you also feel this way, I highly recommend Cleo Chang's presidential explainer videos on Jezebel. Um, these just launched this week and there are just a couple of them so far, but I expect that uh, Cleo will be continuing them for all 20-something candidates. Um, uh, and basically, they're 60-second explainers on who a person is. She's done so far um, Pete Buttigieg and Bill de Blasio, and they are funny. Uh, they're very quick. They're laugh-out-loud hilarious. Uh, Cleo is very good, and they also provide a, a good base of sort of how we should be thinking about these people. Yeah, they're really good. I watched the Buttigieg one probably three times. It's really funny. Um, <laughs> it, it, it includes sort of like all of the the memes that you need to know, which I love. Like she hits those sort of basics about like who he is, where he came from, what his experience is. But then she also folds in like the Norwegian thing and the fact that he like played spoon on the piano. Like you get sort of like everything you need to know to participate in a conversation about Pete Buttigieg in 2019 from 60 seconds of comedy. How about the policy part? Any policy stuff in there, or just well, like? Well, does Pete Buttigieg have any policy? Mm, he has I platitudes. Think, How about I think those? Not Peter. <laughs> um, we can't all be Elizabeth Warren. I can't wait for the one on Andrew Yang, which is going to be just <laughs> packed with like. <laughs> Science. <laughs> 500 ideas yep. about how to create a better world. Like, there's not even going to be room for jokes because, like, the man just has too many damn ideas. And he loves the song Return of the Mac. 
Oh, yes. my goodness. So much good stuff. Oh, my goodness. Wait, has, uh, has she done um, Beto yet? She hasn't She hasn't done very many yet. Um, again, it probably takes a lot to craft this kind of comedic gold, and so mm-hmm. I think they're going to trickle them out um, in the coming weeks. I would expect she'll have more. So smash that subscribe button now. Smash that subscribe. Yeah, Cleo, if you're listening, big fan, big fan, keep it up. Maybe we'll have to have her on the show. <laughs> uh, that's a good idea. And Lauren, do you have any other good ideas? Maybe a recommendation? Yes. So Peter flicked at one of these earlier, but uh, within the past week, I have consumed two wonderful pieces of female-led content. One was Always Be My Maybe, the Netflix film that was written by Ali Wong, among, among other writers, and stars Ali Wong. She's a comedian, now turned actress, and I think she handles the transition really well. It's an absolutely delightful comedy. It feels a little bit like romantic comedies of 10 years ago, maybe more, which we've had this, um, I don't know, this void of in recent years. Even the Netflix kind of rom-com explosion has skewed towards a much younger audience. And even the one, there was this one called The Setup that kind of had two generations, Mm -hmm. uh, but the Tay Diggs, Lucy Liu, they weren't the characters. They weren't the soul of that movie. In this, you have these 30-somethings who are the soul of the movie. Right, and it takes place in San Francisco, and there are a lot of great San Francisco and Oakland references, and uh, it was really enjoyable, and I'm probably burying the lead, which is, oh, by the way, Keanu Reeves had a cameo. (laughs) (laughs) And it was so good. And actually, when I first heard that he had a cameo, and then memes popped up on the internet of this cameo of him walking into a restaurant, and, you know, the, the... the romantic lead, the male romantic lead in the movie realizing like, oh, she's dating Keanu Reeves. Like, how can I compete with this? That kind of moment. That was what was turned into a meme. But it turns out he's in more than one scene. And he just really plays up the caricature of himself. And it's quite funny. Um, he wears like glasses without lenses. It's the, the things he says are ridiculous. It's really great. He challenges the um, Randall Park to a fight at one point in a hotel room. Uh yeah, anyway, highly recommend Always Be My Baby, starring Ali Wong. And then Book Smart was the second film that I went and saw last week. Book Smart is directed by Olivia Wilde and uh, was written by four women scriptwriters. And it's a tale of two overachieving high schoolers who are about to graduate. They're on their way to prestigious colleges. Well, one of them is actually not on her way to a prestigious college. That's part of the plot twist. But anyway, um, but they're both like really, really high achievers. And then they realize in their last day of school, they've had no fun in high school. And they think that they're doing much better than all of the cool kids who have been partying for four years. And they come to realize that the cool kids manage to party and get into excellent schools. And so they set out on this one night together, determined to party and, you know, approach their crushes, uh, their one last hurrah. And it's it's excellently written. It's really funny. And there's just some clever moments where um, you can really see Olivia Wilde sort of flexing as a director. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really good. And I really enjoyed it. So I highly recommend that. It was also just announced that she's going to give the film keynote at South by Southwest. Oh, that's so exciting. Yes. That's really great. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, the film has not done so well. It was released on Memorial Day weekend, and uh, a lot of it has been credited to a lack of marketing. Hmm. Um, there just wasn't a ton of marketing done around the film. And um, plus, it's like it was released around the same time, I think, as the Avengers. Yeah. Right? And it's, just, I mean, it's, a, it's not running that on that many screens. Like, it's kind of yes. a, a, a narrower release. Somewhat limited release. Yeah. Also has an R rating, which ah. I think, so if you're trying to appeal to, like, a... I don't know, young eighth grade women, let's say, or whatever it might be, you know, eighth grade girls, like there might be some barrier there because of its rating. Um, but it's it's 
really funny. Can so you, I recommend can you it. Still, like, not get into an R-rated movie if you're not 17, or is that are those days gone? Oh, uh, well, that's no. the law. Well, no, it's not really a law. <laughs> it's movie theater law. It's a recommendation. It's movie theater law. It's restricted. Yeah, not recommended. Well, no, you know, it's like, hey, this is what we think you may want to pay attention to when people want to see this movie. It's not like if you sell somebody, uh, uh, if you sell a 16 year old a ticket to an R-rated movie, you're not going to get arrested. You might get fired if your boss is a jerk, but you're not going to get arrested. You don't know that. You're right. There's a lot I don't know. <laughs> there is this movie theater, by the way, in Mountain View. Um, so I live in Silicon Valley, and um, and there's this movie theater in Mountain View now that's like one of these icon theaters, and it's so nice. It's so amazing. The seats are really comfortable. They sell all kinds of food and alcohol, and um, it's really nicely air conditioned. I don't know. It's been really hot here. So, so <laughs> is this um, where you saw Booksmart? Yeah, I, was, I saw John Wick three and Booksmart there recently, and I'm just like hooked on this theater. But it reminds me. I mean, there, I think that there's this, there was a period of time, especially like post recession, where theater going just kind of dropped for a while. And then when you go back to a theater like this, you're just reminded of how nice of an experience it could be to go to a movie theater. That's true. Well. Thank you all for your recommendations. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on the everyone. show. Tell everybody how they can find you on the Twitter. Uh, you can find me on the Twitter at Proven Self, P-R-O-V-E-N-S-E-L-F. And Lauren, you are? I am uh, Lauren Reeves. That's R-E-E-V-E-S. <laughs> <laughs> find me on the Twitter. It's Reeves, Reeves with the knee. R-E-L. Bunch of uh, I'm at Pardesoteric. I am at Snack Fight, and you can talk to all of us, including Lauren, <laughs> on <laughs> the main Twitter feed for uh, this show and for all the coverage we do here at Wired. It is called at Gadget Lab. Also, if you enjoyed this episode or even if you have other feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We would love to hear what you think of what we do. And until next week, we bid you adieu. Smash those five stars.